All right, am I on? Check one, two, check, check. All right, I'm good to go. All right, if you can make your way back to your seats. So actually, before I get started, I forgot to just uh, read something. Uh, before they left, the Dojiro family just left a, a nice little card in the parsonage, and I just want to read it. It's addressed to the church, and we're the church. And then also their youngest daughter, Ruama, or Rumi, she also wrote a letter too. So I'll read hers first, and I'll read you what Josh and Carmela uh, left for us. So, to the church from Ruama, dear people of the church, thank you so much for all the wonderful gifts you gave us. Also, thank you to all the people who brought us out for food. I think all of you guys have shown hospitality and generousness. I had an amazing trip. Thank you for being so kind and giving us this house to use. Thank you for everything. Love, Ruama. And then this one was from Josh and his wife, Carmela. They said, Dear New Village Church, we are so grateful for your hospitality from setting up the house for us, taking us to lunch, or bringing us breakfast, or just celebrating Benedetta's birthday. You have been truly an amazing, sorry, you have, you have been truly an amazing display of love to us. Thank you so much, Josh and Carmela. So like I mentioned before, we're moving forward with, with Josh and his family, so just keep that in prayer, keep his family in prayer. Uh, pray that the Lord's will will be done. Um, sometimes we just, we get so focused on what we want, and sometimes what we want isn't what God wants. So whatever happens, let's just lift them up in prayer. They got some decisions to make. We as a church have a decision to make as well. Let me just pray. Dear God, I just thank you for another opportunity to just share your word. Uh, God, I just pray that you, you keep me humble. Father, I pray that you use me as your vessel, as we just sang a few minutes ago. I pray that you're glorified through me and you get all the glory and credit this morning. I pray, Lord, for your spirit to be moving within me. I pray to, to be um, just discerning and in, to what to say and what not to say. I pray that I'm moved by the spirit and not my emotions. So, God, we thank you so much for your word that's alive and active. We thank you that it transforms and it changes us. We love you so much. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So if you have your bulletins, you should have a little bulletin insert. If you like to fill in the blanks, I got some good news you'll enjoy today. I got some blanks for you to fill in. Um, but as I just start off, I want to just say something, a phrase that I think most of us will agree with. And if you disagree with it, you can talk to me after service and I'll convince you that you're wrong. I'm just kidding. But um, this, is the, this is the phrase. Ready? Truth is under attack. Truth is under attack. Whether you've been fact-checked on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, maybe if some of you went to Facebook jail before for posting something, right? Fact-checking is now a thing. And I'm not getting into the whole debate of the, the, the public, uh, basically the private enterprise and free speech. I'm not getting into that. But what I'm just saying as well is over the past couple of years, there's been a new phrase that's been used over and over again as well. And that phrase has been fake news, right? So we have this whole culture that's obsessed with the truth. In one, in one hand, they're obsessed with the truth. They're obsessed with saying, no, 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 you're wrong, and this is the real truth. This is what's going on. But I think as a whole, truth is under attack. And I don't know if you've talked to people who are unbelievers or have talked to people at your work or if you're friends at school, but there seems to be this phrase that's said over and over and over again. It goes something like this. Well, that's your truth. That's your truth. This is my truth right? I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but when you use that phrase or if you heard that phrase, what it does is it makes truth relative, right? It makes it so that anything I say 
is the truth in my own little bubble. I'm sort of the God of my own little bubble and saying, well, I'm the absolute measure of truth and what I say is the truth. And it doesn't really matter what you say. That could be your truth, right? Have you ever just gotten into a fight or a debate, friendly debate? How about that? Heated debate with somebody and you're just like, you know what? I'm going to Google it and I'm going to prove you wrong. And then you Google it, right? And you use that as your defense because you're looking for the truth. And depending on if you're right or wrong, you might be like, hey, I got to go. I'll see you later. Or you'll be like, see, Google says it right here. See, you're a liar. This is the truth. I think, again, as a culture, right, nowadays, truth is always under attack. And when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to our faith, truth has always been under attack. Truth has always been under attack. Jesus himself said this. While he was doing his three-year ministry before the cross with the disciples, he, he gave this warning. And sometimes we read over it and we're like, yeah, okay, we know that. But this is it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. That's Matthew chapter 7. Again, he said this when he was alive with his disciples. This wasn't like after he died, he came back to them and was like, hey, false prophets are going to come. Just beware, church. He's saying this right now, or back then, right then, to his disciples before the cross. Even Jesus knew that truth is always under attack. And since Jesus' death, his resurrection, his, his ascension up into heaven, almost every letter or, or scripture in the New Testament has a, 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 in one way or another, it shares a common phrase or a common theme. It might be one verse, it could be a whole chapter of the book, and this theme is this, beware of false teachers. I actually went through a couple months ago, and I think there was like two or three books out of the whole New Testament that didn't really mention false teachers, be alert, be on guard, stand firm, but most of it, and most of what the early church was defending was the truth of the gospel, the truth. It was under attack. So if you have your Bibles, if you can make your way to Revelation, and actually before you get there, go back a page and, and stop at Jude, because we're in Jude for, last, for the next couple of weeks here. So uh, we're not at Revelation. So go to the, the book of Jude. It can be easily missed because it's only one page in my Bible. It's 25 verses. Maybe it gets stuck to 3 John or gets stuck to Revelation, and you're like, oh, I guess I'll go from 2 John to Revelation, right? It's one page, and, and you can easily be over-missed. And as I was just deciding to preach through a book of the Bible for the next couple of weeks straight, uh, we were in an elders meeting, and I was like, hey, you guys got any suggestions? And um, actually, Mark Harrigan was like, how about you do the book of Jude? And shame on me, to, to, my, you know, to my response to that, I was like, Jude, come on. Like, it's so little. What, what, how am I going to do three weeks in Jude? And I read it over that night, and I was like, wow, God gave me a slice of humble pie. And I told Mark, I said, Mark, thank you so much for that suggestion. I'm doing Jude. Um, so we're going to be in the book of Jude, it's 25 verses, and to my surprise, I actually just went on our church website, and I looked up in the search bar of the sermon databases Jude, and I couldn't find anything. So either Jude was preached years and years and years ago, or maybe it got mistitled somehow, but it's a book of the Bible that I think it's forgotten about. A lot of times we get so excited about Revelation, or, or the, the, the first John, second John, third John, and then Jude, you're like, ah, Jude, okay, and then you go to the last book of the Bible. So hopefully I've stalled long enough. Hopefully you found the book of Jude, Jude's little letter here. And what I want to do is before we read it, I just want to stress something. Jude's letter, as you read it, he's stressing the importance of truth, the importance of truth. As we mentioned a few seconds ago, the New Testament is full of warnings for the early church to be on alert and to stand on guard against false teachers, against her heresy of the gospel. 
So if you're in Jude, I just want to give a little bit of context because I think context is important, especially when you read God's word. It helps you understand sort of the time period, who wrote it, and the themes of what's going on. So by the name of it, Jude is obviously written by Jude. And he's, he identifies himself in verse 1 as the brother of James. And that's the same James that wrote the book of James. And this makes Jude the Jude that's Jesus' half-brother. Jude is the only New Testament writer that identifies himself by a family relationship. He doesn't claim to be an apostle. He doesn't claim to have the authority. He just says, hey, I'm the brother of James. Uh, Jude also shares the same name as Judas Iscariot. Uh, it comes from Judah, which is a very popular ancient Israel name. Uh, Jude also refers to himself in verse 1 as a bond servant or a servant slave of Jesus, rather than saying he's Jesus' half-brother. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. He believed in the deity of Christ, like his family did, but after the resurrection of Jesus. Most of Jesus' family in the Gospels thought he was crazy. They wanted him to be quiet and to stop saying things. And, and he, Jesus, time and time again, when you read the New Testament, his, his family is just saying he's out of his mind. Society is trying to kill Jesus, yet we see now Jude and his brother James, something sort of switch. Jesus went from being their half-brother to now being their Lord, their Messiah, their Savior. And besides that, there's really not too much known about Jude. It was believed that he was married. It was also believed that he was a strong evangelist as well. Uh, and just a more background on his little letter here, it was most likely written after Peter's death, and it was, but it was also written before the destruction of the temple, which sort of limits the time frame to 68 to about 70, 80, somewhere in those two or three years. Some people claim that he wrote it, or that it was written by someone writing under the name Jude about 200, 300 AD, but it just, as you read it and as I've been studying it, it that's not the case. So this is written by Jesus' half-brother. He write, he's writing to most likely the same group of Christians that Peter wrote to in First and Second Peter. And these believers that he's writing to, they're most likely Jewish, or they know their Old Testament and how do we know that? If you've read his letter, it's full of Old Testament illustrations. And he actually quotes from Jewish Apocrypha as well. So pray for me in the next coming week because there's some interesting things in this little letter. Um, so it's a more of a broad audience rather than a specific church or specific sect of people. Uh, there's also a lot of parallel themes that run between Second Peter and Jude. Peter predicts that false teachers will come. He uses the future tense, be on guard. They're coming. They will be here. And Jude talks about how the false teachers are here. They're among us. They're in the church. They've arrived. Jude also quotes uh, from Peter's prophecy, and we'll talk about that in a, in a couple weeks as well. Uh, but what Jude recognized, he recognized that the battle for truth in the church had already begun. Truth was under attack. A few years earlier, Peter alludes to it in 1st and 2nd Peter, and then tw about 25 years later in the book of Revelation, only two of the seven churches remained faithful to God. So something happened. There was Christianity under attack. Truth was being attacked. So if you have your Bible, hopefully you're still in Jude, we're going to read just the first four verses, and I want to I give you a challenge. Sometime later today, finish the book. It takes about four minutes to read. I, I timed myself. I'm a weak reader, so if it takes me four minutes, it'll take you maybe two or three. But let's read the first four verses of Jude together this morning here. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. 
may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So I just want to focus on the first part of verse 1 for a few minutes here. We see that Jude refers to himself as a bondservant, or more specifically, this word is doulos, slave. And it's, it's, it means being owned or rendering absolute authority to somebody else. You, you selflessly submit your life and you decide and say, you know what? You're in control. I, I give it up. I surrender. So Jude is saying he's a slave. He's completely owned and selflessly in total submission to who? To Jesus Christ. To Jesus Christ. He doesn't claim to be an apostle. He doesn't even use the, hey, Jesus is my half-brother, so you've got to listen to me card, right? He doesn't throw that in there. He actually says, no, I'm the brother of James, right? That that's really shows his humility even while writing his little letter in the first verse. So again, we see that Jesus is his Lord. Jesus is his master. And every commentary I read, every sermon I've listened to, everybody I talked to about Jude who's more knowledgeable about the Bible than me, they always like to make this link, as I mentioned earlier, that it's ironic that Jude has the same name as Judas Iscariot, right? Jude, on the one hand, he submits to Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And then Judas Iscariot, where he's seen betraying Jesus. He's betraying the Lord. He surrenders him over to the Roman government. And then we also see Jude, who's a grateful, willing slave of Jesus. And we see in the rest of his letter, he calls out those who deny Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those who deny Jesus' lordship. And as we continue through the next couple of verses here, we're going to be on the first four verses, and every time I've ran through this sermon, it's been long, so I promise I'm going to try to listen to the Spirit. Maybe he wants me to go longer today. Maybe he wants me to go shorter today. But I promise it will take three weeks only to get through it. Uh, I, well, maybe I shouldn't promise that. We'll see what happens. But I'm planning three weeks. Uh, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to link each verse with a, a theme or an overall, like an overall theme. So if you have your outline, I'll actually give you the three main blanks in case you get nervous or, or anxious that you might miss one. I'll give them all to you right now. The first blank is this. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. The second is Jude's change of plans. Jude's change of plans. And the third is to be on guard or to be on alert. Remember, change, guard. So number one, remember who you are. And as I was coming up with this phrase, I was like, man, this is a really good phrase. Like, I can't believe I thought of this, right? I was thinking very, very pridefully at the time. I was like, man, this is, what a great phrase. Remember who you are. And I was like, wow, I can't believe I came up with this. And then something clicked, and I was like, wait a minute. Hey, Stephanie, in the, in the Lion King, what does Mufasa say to Simba when he goes back to Pride Rock? He says, remember who you are. And I'm like, oh, no, I got my, I got my point from, from the Lion King. Um, but please don't think of the Lion King here. Think of Jude saying, remember who you are. So verse 1b into 2, the second half of verse 1, Jude says this, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. 
Again, who is he writing to? He's writing to genuine believers, those who are called, those who are loved, those who are kept, and those who received blessing, you know, mercy, peace, and love, blessing from God. So what I want to do is I just want to focus on each one of these words because it's important to unpack what he means when he uses these words. The first word he says is called, and this comes from the word kaleo, which conveys the idea of being personally chosen or selected. And I was looking at examples throughout Google, and, and the only example that I really liked was, think of a king summoning someone to his presence. That's not a call that you can choose to ignore. That's not a call that you can say, yeah, that's okay, I'll come later, I'll come when I want to come. No, 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 the king has absolute authority. And in the same way, God has called believers to himself. Kaleo, called. He has set them apart and chosen them as children. And don't get confused, this is not God's general invitation or a call to sinners to repent, because God calls everybody to repentance. But rather, this is God's effectual call. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, if you want to jot that down and look at it later, this is what um, Paul says to Timothy. He says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner, Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and his own grace. This grace was given to us in Jesus Christ before the beginning of time. So we see God chose believers based solely on what? On his gracious purpose and his mercy in Christ Jesus. You also have Romans chapter 9 as a whole, and you can, you can write this down and look at it later. You have 1 Timothy 6.12 that Paul says this. Most of us know the first part. Fight the good fight of faith, right? What a very uplifting, encouraging part of the verse. But then he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. That word, again, called. Romans 1.6, Paul says, including you who were called, to belong to Jesus Christ. Romans 8:28. We know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. To those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And I had about 20 more verses with this word called in it, and rather than just going through them, you can ask me later. But we just see that Jude is reminding these people, hey, you were called by God. He chose you even before the foundation of the world, before time began, you were called to God. Not because of what you've done, because of his rich mercy and his rich love for you. So Jude reminds them they're called. The second thing he says is, beloved, or you can use the word loved. And the Greek for this is agapo, agapo. And I love this definition. I'm going to read it. I don't want to get it confused here. Agapo expresses the ideal kind of love, love that is, ex love that, that is exercised by will rather than emotion, not determined by the beauty or desirability of the object, but by noble intention of the one who loves. Meaning, to love unconditionally and to love sacrificially as God loves sinful men the way he loves his son. And again, this isn't a love that you can earn or a love that's deserved or a love that you can buy from God, right? Because then that wouldn't make it agapo. 
when it, the word agapo puts all the power and all the love on the person who's giving the love. Right? It's not based on desirability, not based on what that person can give to you. Agapo. God chose to love and chose to save believers before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, if you just want to jot that down and look at it later. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God shows you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through the belief in the truth. And this is probably one of my favorite passages more in, in recently, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 6. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And as I've just been studying more of God's love for us, I saw even in, in, in a couple sermons and commentaries this theme of, of God's love, it required him to do a few things. His love required that his son to die on the cross. Jesus had to come and be sacrificed on our behalf. Jesus had to die for us. His, God's love for us also required him to send us his spirit, to send us the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, to draw us to saving grace, and to regenerate our hearts. God's love, it also requires him to continually keep us secure and to protect us as his children. Throughout the scriptures, we read of a, of a promise of eternal life. As, as Jesus says a little later, we'll read this, but no one can snatch you out of my hand. This eternal, secure everlasting life that's promised. God, and I want you to, I want you, before I read this, just imagine this is the first time you're hearing this. And, and I did this and I was, I was just blown away. Right? Just pretend for a moment that what I'm going to say is, is you've never heard before or, or maybe think of it and what it truly means. God loves redeemed sinners with the same love that he has for Jesus, his son. He loves us if you're in Christ. He loves us infinitely, eternally, and completely, he completely secures and calls us to himself. So again, Judah's reminding them, you are called, you are loved, and also you are kept. You are kept. And the best way to think of this is to observe or to pay attention to, to keep under guard, to protect. And it echoes Jesus' words when he said that I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. John chapter 10. So again, we see that there's this promise to keep us as believers, to keep Christians secure in our faith, in our salvation for all eternity. And we can rest in God knowing that our eternal safekeeping is in God's hands and not our own hands. If it was in our hands, we'd be in huge trouble. We don't have to live in fear of constant fear of losing something that God has given us. And then lastly, as we transition to verse 2 here, um, Jude pronounces a blessing over these readers, over his audience, and he reminds them that they're blessed. In verse 2 he says, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And mercy and peace, that was a common Jewish greeting. 
And that was a common Jewish uh, expression or, or, or blessing. But Jude adds the word love. And this is the only time in the New Testament where this threefold phrase is used. And I found that really interesting. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. And this word multiplied, it simply means to be increased. Or this definition, to be to the fullest measure. So it might read, may mercy and peace and love be increased to the fullest amount possible in your lives. And that's a, a huge, powerful, encouraging blessing that Jude is telling his audience. And again, Jude's prayer and his blessing is that his audience would continually enjoy the Lord's blessing, no matter how difficult their spiritual battle might become. And we'll see in the next coming weeks here, they're up against some pretty powerful things. So uh, even just looking at blessed, right, mercy, peace, love, real quick, uh, when, I, when I think of the word mercy, I think of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. The author says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What a powerful encouragement of a verse. When he says peace, it stems from knowing, having that peace that your sins are forgiven. Right? If you are in Christ, you're no longer an enemy of God. You're no longer a slave to darkness, but you're a child of the light, to walk in the light, to walk in Christ. So Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And then lastly too, when I think of the word love, I think of Romans chapter 5 verse 5. And Paul says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been freely given to us. And a few months ago, I believe it was before covid uh, COVID sort of messed my whole time up. I can't think of how life was before COVID. But um, a few months ago, I, I, I did a, 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 ser- a sermon or a lesson at youth group, and I just was telling them and, and showing them how God's love for us, it never runs out. He loves us perfectly. He loves us eternally. And I remember, and I, and I didn't have time to get it this morning, but in one hand, I had like a red Solo cup, and in my other hand, I had a huge pitcher of water. And I told the kids, I said, hey, remember, or just pretend with me, that this water's infinite, that it'll never run out. So what I did was I poured the water into the cup, and when it got to the brim, I just kept going, and I kept going, and the water was overflowing and falling on the ground. I had a bowl to catch it and some towels. I, I cleaned it up. But we just had this, this imagery of God's love. He pours it into us, and it's this perfect, eternal, unending love that he has for us. And, and I think I used uh, Lamentations 3.23, which is, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never comes to an end. So again, this whole analogy or this whole thing of God's love, he, he pours it infinitely, never running out. That's the type of love we have received from God if we are redeemed. So that was point number one. Point number two, we see that Jude has a change of plans. Jude has a change of plans. Let's read verse three. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we we learn something here about Jude's intention or Jude's letter. We learn that that Jude wasn't able to complete what he originally wanted to do. He, He had originally planned to encourage the believers, to encourage his audience with talking about the joy of their common salvation, the joy of eternal life. But something changed, 
right? He went from this, well, here's a nice, happy, positive, encouraging letter, but something changed, and he quickly changes the theme and his message to these believers. He says, I found it necessary. I found it necessary. And I looked at what that really means, and it, it, it could be changed to, I had a heavy burden, or I felt the mandate to. And he was mandating, he felt the mandate, the burden, he found it necessary to write appealing to the believers to contend for their faith. And that phrase that he used, contend for the faith, it's really a call to battle. It's a call to defend truth continuously and vigorously. So he's not so much just talking about their individual faith or their individual salvation, but he's rather talking about the Christian faith as a whole is under attack. The truth of Jesus Christ is under attack. And Jude couldn't simply watch in silence. He couldn't just write his letter and say, you know what, I, I really wanted to write on this, so I'm just going to send him this letter, and maybe, you know, maybe when I see them, I'll let them know what's going on. He couldn't sit in silence and see what was happening to the church and to early believers being slipped and being led into error. So he devotes the rest of his letter to calling out these false teachers, and I, I didn't read all of Jude, and I decided not to because it can be very distracting as you read some really weird and interesting stories that you're like, that's in the Bible? Um, so instead, I wanted to focus on these first four verses, but we see that Jude doesn't hold back. He uses extreme Old Testament uh, condemnation or judgment stories to tell his readers about the danger that they're in. He's saying, you're not in a little bit of danger. I'm not just concerned for you. He's saying, you're under attack. You're under attack. So he has a change of plans. And then the third thing he says, as we continue reading in the verses here, is to be on guard, to be on guard. Verse four, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I think if we're being honest, as, as Christians, I think sometimes we forget about the importance of truth. Whether we were too shy, right? If someone's saying something about Christianity or saying, oh, I just, I just, I can't stand Christians. They're just so arrogant. Or, you know, Christians are the, are the biggest hypocrites or, or this or that. And maybe you've just sort of sat by silently and you're like, yeah. Or, or you walk, you're like, oh, look at the time. I got to go, right? Sometimes we forget the importance of standing up for truth, standing up for Jesus. We forget the importance of truth, but Satan never does. The enemy doesn't. And Satan's most effective agents throughout the New Testament that we see are called apostates. And that's your next uh, blank, characteristics of apostates. These are spiritual terrorists. They infiltrate the church and they destroy from within, right? On the one hand, you have like false teachers who proclaim a different gospel or proclaim something different and say, hey, and this was big in the New Testament too, like they say, hey, Jewish Christians, you have to follow the Jewish laws and you got to get circumcised and you got to be obedient to Moses and then you can follow Jesus, right? That, that's a false teacher. But what Jude's saying is, no, 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 right now, the danger is in your church. They are apostates. And these apostates, why they're so dangerous is they, they proclaim or they claim to know Jesus Christ. They might say the good things, say the right answer, but their actions indicate that they are enemies of the truth. They're enemies of Jesus. 
And even the author of Hebrews goes as uh, far as to say that these people, these apostates, can even taste and see the works of the Spirit. Meaning if, if they're in the church, they can see the Spirit moving, God moving in the midst. They can see that and partake in that. But if they were given the chance, the next line after that says, if they were given the chance, they would re-crucify Jesus Christ all over again on that cross. That is a deep hatred for Jesus. Deep hatred for Jesus. And what's interesting about the apostates, right, Jude doesn't call out these specific people by name. He's not like, uh, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you, to contend for the faith, uh, for... And then just list for Stephanie or, you know, I'm not calling Stephanie an apostate. I'm just using it for an example here. But he didn't call out these specific apostates by name. But what does he do if you read it? He calls out them by their, by their godless lifestyle. And it sort of echoes what Jesus says, right? You're going to know who is a believer. You're going to know who is my follower by what? By their fruit, by how they act. And one commentary author writes this, and I just love it. He says, Jude, by revealing their character, not what they say or, or, or who they are, but revealing how they act and their character, he strips them of any and all authority that they might have in the church. So right away, he's attacking these apostates. He's not holding back. And throughout Jude, when you get further towards like verse uh, 14, 15, 16, you're going to see Jude use the word ungodly over and over and over again. And he even says it in verse 4, ungodly people. So from verse 4, you can see that there's three characteristics that Jude says and warns them about these apostates. The first is this. He says, they crept in unnoticed. They crept in unnoticed. They're sneaky, they're clever, they're cunning. And that's what's so hard about finding the apostates, and that's why Jude's seeing the danger from the outside. He's saying, no, 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 they're here. They're already in your church. They infiltrated it, and they're here to destroy from within. The second thing we learn about apostates is that they pervert the grace of our God. That's what he says. And when I use the word, or when I think of the word pervert, in my mind, what I think about is someone twisting something or distorting it so that maybe you can see the original, but in one way or another, you've changed it. You've changed it. And what I think of is apostates coming into the church, and they take God's word, and they start to twist it. They start to change it. Maybe you'll hear the word, you know, well, the Bible doesn't really say that, does it? Or God didn't really mean that. Or maybe you should look in this translation. This one says it it this way. And I feel as if the Bible says it this way, right? Or how can I know that this is the real truth? I, I've heard these, uh, these, these arguments before when I talk to people about the Bible and what the Bible says about certain issues nowadays. And really what they do is they pervert and they twist. And if you think back to Satan, what did he say to Eve? Did God really say? Right, sort of that, that twist on God's command, that seed of doubt gets planted. So they crept in unnoticed. These apostates, they pr- uh, pervert, they, they twist the grace of God And then the last thing he says is, they deny Jesus as Lord and Master. They deny Jesus as Lord and as as his Master. And Jude, as we'll see in the later weeks here, he argues that their life reflects this denial. They could say all the good words they want and and put on the best show and and come come to their church back then in in the best suit and tie or whatever, but he's saying their life 
is by, by their life, evidence of their life, they're claiming a different truth than what they say. Their life is evident by their ungodly lifestyle that they deny Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So Jude, throughout the rest of his letter, he uses these great warnings and great condemnations in the Old Testament to combat the great danger that his audience is in. He doesn't hold back calling out these wolves who are in sheep clothing. So again, be on guard. As Christians, we should remember and know the truth of the gospel, know the truth of Jesus, and stand up, be on guard. And I just want to end in the next couple of minutes here by just really just going sort of point by point and and making it more personal for us nowadays. I think, number one, remember who you are. As Christians, right, we can get busy with life. We can maybe say, oh, you know, I haven't really read my Bible in a week or two, and and that's okay, right? I I feel like if we're being honest, we've all been inconsistent with our walk with the Lord. However, remember who you are. Remember that God has called you. God loves you. He's kept you. He blesses you. Remember who you are in Christ. The second thing is Jude had a change of plans, and what I really feel like is the Holy Spirit led him to, to, again, to let him to write something different than what he intended to write, right? It would have been easy for Jude to say, yeah, I'm going to write about all the good things, and hey, remember to stand firm in your faith, and God's got your back, and all these little things here. But I really feel like he's being obedient to the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is prompting him and, and commanding him to write about the danger that this church, the danger that these believers, and the church as a whole, I mean, the believers are facing, and I think nowadays for us, we have to be listening to the spirit of truth. There's actually a book by Francis Chan, and I read it years ago, uh, but it was called Forgotten God. And it was a whole book devoted to the Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we do a really good job of just forgetting about the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, the role he plays, that the Holy Spirit is God, that we have the Holy Spirit within us. The Bible also calls it the spirit of truth. He calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. He's called the comforter. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom, equips us, helps us, makes us more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit points us to truth and causes us to act out of necessity. And there's been times in my life where I have to ask repentance for it because I say, you know what? I selfishly don't want to talk to this person. Right, and it's little things. It's like, oh, maybe there's a guy in a line behind me at the grocery store, and I'm like, you know, I really feel like this guy's ta- like, why is he talking to me? I just want to like check out, and, and he's, he's talking my ear off about how miserable he is. And, and you know, unfortunately, self- selfishly, I've said, oh, that stinks, sorry, you know, or something like that. And I'm like, man, like, was that something the Spirit was prompting me to just show him the love that I've received from Christ? Right, we're really good at stifling and, and putting the Spirit down, But have we truly listened to the Spirit and allowed the Holy Spirit to transform us and give us wisdom and give us the truth to say? So again, I just found it encouraging. Jude changed his motive for his letter, and I I would say it was attributed to the Holy Spirit working in him to warn the church, to warn the Christians what they were facing. And the last warning, which again is, 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 um, it's for us nowadays too, to be on guard. Sometimes we forget we're, we're in a battle with Satan. We're in a battle with, with an enemy that we can't see, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, 6, Ephesians 6, right, about the armor of God. 
It says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So again, be on guard. Remember that Satan will do anything to distort, to twist, to pervert God's word. Check everything that's said from this pulpit, from any YouTube preachers you listen to, from me, from your person who's discipling you. Check what they say against God's word. And if they are against God's word, who's in the wrong? They are. If I preach anything from this pulpit and it goes against the word of God, you better let me know and you better hold me accountable. In the same way, again, check everything against God's word. And the, the thing that makes that tough is if you don't know God's word, how do you know the truth? How do you know what to check against? Uphold the truth of the gospel. Uphold the truth. Be on guard. And I'm going to be very honest. We live in a, in a world today that the gospel is offensive. The gospel is very offensive because we've, we've created this, this all-relative truth where it's like, all right, this is my truth. This is in my, you're in my lane, right? This is my bubble. I'm the God of my own life here. I'm, I'm in my bubble. And then that, you know, this is my truth, and that might be your truth, so I'm not going to listen to your truth, or I'm not going to give you my truth. I'm rambling on here. But the whole point of that is that the gospel is offensive because the gospel says, no, 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 no. There's only one truth. As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we've been going through the I am statements at youth group this, these past couple of weeks. And to just really read that again, right? We all know that verse. But what that really is saying is Jesus says, no, no, no. It's me alone. I am the absolute measure of truth. And a lot of times what we do is we don't give people the full gospel. Or maybe we shy away. Maybe it goes one or two ways. Maybe you say, you know, God loves you so much. God has a plan for you, and he loves you, and he just, he's just waiting for you to, to accept him into your heart. And then people are like, oh, okay, well, if he loves me, that's great. But that really is not the full picture of the gospel. And then you have other people who just bash you over the head and be like, you're a dirty, rotten sinner. How could you do that? How dare you, right? Like they just destroy you with how bad you are, and they leave you there. They don't even talk about the encouraging part, right? They leave it. But the whole gospel message, you know, each of those have elements of truth, but, but the truth of the gospel is that we aren't good enough, right? That, that we will fail, that we have failed, that we have sinned. And no matter what we do, we can't make it to heaven on our own. But, and make sure you say this when you share the gospel, but the good news is Jesus Christ came and he paid the penalty for our sin. And Jesus Christ demands repentance from sin, he demands that you make him Lord and Savior and be obedient to him. And yes, God does love us. He does. He sent us Jesus to die on the cross. But sometimes when you don't share that full gospel story, right? We are sinners in need of a Savior. The Savior came and he saved us. And then the next step is we become a new creation. We get the Holy Spirit if you repent from your sins and you turn to Christ. And we become like Jesus. So again, the gospel is offensive because at its nature you say you're not good enough or your truth isn't the real truth. My truth's not the real truth. The, the real truth is right here. Jesus Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I just want to end with this sentence. Simply, live your life or live in such a way that your life is evidence of the truth of the gospel. Let's be honest. I can be up here and claim how much of the perfect husband I am about how I'm, I'm the most humble person I know. Yet, if you see me and my actions show something different, just because I claim it doesn't mean it's true. You can ask Stephanie, I'm not the perfect husband in the world. Do I try to be? Yes. Do I fail? Absolutely. As we all fail, right? I'm not just pointing the finger at me. But again, live in such a way that your life, 
is evidence of the truth of the gospel. Even the words we sang this morning, right? We all proclaimed, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When you, when you sing that to God, do you live that way? Do you live believing what you've sing? And that's my challenge. And, and sort of your homework or two challenges, I don't like the word homework, but I want to encourage you, read the rest of Jude's letter this week. Come back next week, we're going to talk more about his judgment on these false teachers, these apostates that have infiltrated the church, infiltrated Christianity, and also think about the way you live. If someone looks at you, do they see Christ based on your life, based on what you do and how you treat people, how you love others? So let's pray. Father, we just praise you this morning. As Jude reminds us, we just praise you and thank you that you have called us, that you love us, and that you have kept us. We thank you for all the blessings, for the mercy, for peace, for love, for forgiveness, for grace that you gave to us, not based on what we've done, but based on who you are. God, you are holy and perfect. You are good. I pray that this we can be mindful of the way that we are living. I pray, Lord, that Again, we can think of the love that we've received from Jesus. We can listen to the Spirit working within our hearts. And we can live in a way that glorifies you. Help us to, again, live in a way that matches what we say and what we believe and what we sing. Jesus, we thank you so much for coming down from heaven, for dying on the cross, for being our sacrificial, eternal lamb. We thank you that there's forgiveness in you, And as the author of Hebrews says, we can boldly approach the throne of grace, the throne of God, having received mercy, grace, and forgiveness. So we thank you so much for that confidence we have in you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.